In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The reading from the Gospel today reminded me of a story that a rabbi by the name of Ed Freeman used to tell, or heard him say a number of times, and then he wrote it into a book entitled Freedman's Fables. When I first came to Washington, D.C., I joined a group of clergy that gathered on a once-a-month basis, and uh, it was a colleague group. There were 10 of us that gathered on a once-a-month basis, and our consultant was Ed Freeman, and Ed was a uh, psychotherapist. He was a rabbi, and he came and was the one who led us through our conversations about personal issues as well as issues of our profession, and he always told these incredible stories that always left me confused. Um, I always thought to myself, you know, he must be one of, as part of that uh, uh, mystic rabbi thing that we Christians don't understand or something along those lines because I never could understand fully the story, but they always made me think. And it the story from the gospel that they remind me of this particular story, which is of a man who cross, who's crossing the bridge. And the story goes like this. There's a man who finally, after a very a great deal of introspection, recognizes what his purpose in life is. And he finally knows what his purpose in life is, and there's not a whole lot of time to get there. He's got to do it pretty quickly in order to be able to come to grips with his purpose in life. So he begins his journey. He begins to travel his journey. And in this particular story, he's traveling to go cross over a bridge that is in the center of the town. It's high above the river so that the river could never wash it out. And he's going. He's determined now because he's got the purpose of his life. He's clear about the purpose of his life. He's got to go, and he's got a limited amount of time to get there. And then he looks up on the bridge, and here comes another man walking across the bridge towards him. And at first he looks at him, he says, he looks like a very normal guy. We'll just cross, cross by each other. But as they get closer and closer to each other, he notices that this man has wrapped around his waist a rope that has been tied over and over and over. So it's a fairly long rope. And finally, as they get together, the man in a very pleasant and a very polite manner says to our guy, our guy who has discovered his purpose in life, and he says, here, as he's doing, undoing his rope, he's taking his rope off, and he hands the end of the rope to our friend who has a purpose in life. He's got to get there, and he gives it to him, and he, and he says to him, hang on to this. Hang on to this for dear life. And our man says, why should I do that? And he says, just hang on. I need you to hang on. And our man who's been coming across the bridge jumps over the side of the bridge, and he floats down 30 feet. And our man, our good guy, who has a purpose in life, is sitting there hanging on to this particular rope. Well, you can imagine a guy over a bridge, you can imagine how much weight that is, how much counterweight he has to defend, and he's holding on for dear life. And while he's holding on to dear life, he finally comes over to the edge of the bridge and he says, what have you done? Are you crazy? And the man says, I had to do it. And he says, I don't care whether you had to do it or not. I'm hanging on here for dear life. What do you want me to do? So the man looks up at him hanging from the bridge and he says, from now on, I need you to take care of me. I have become your responsibility. So our man says, I can't hang on for very much longer. So the man hanging over the bridge says, well, tie the rope around your waist and hang on to it. You'll be able to hang on a lot longer. Our man says, but even if I hang a lot longer, I've got to go because I know the purpose of my life and I've only got a certain amount of time to get there. Our man down on the other over has jumped over the bridge, says back to him, I don't care. You need to take care of me. I am your responsibility. So our man keeps hanging on. They keep going back and forth, always saying, 
You need to take care of me. I am your responsibility now. So finally, our good friend, who's hanging on for dear life on the rope, says, I've got a good idea. We've got two options here today. The first one is this. I can just jump over the bridge, and both of us can die, and that will teach that man a lesson. <laughs> then he thinks, that's not a good idea. <laughs> I've got a purpose in life, and I don't have much time to get there. I need to figure something else out. So he says to the man that's hanging over the bridge, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll hang on to the rope, I'll tie it around my waist, and I will lean back, and while I'm doing that, I will pull you up a little bit, and you start wrapping the rope around your waist. And every time you wrap your rope around your waist, we will get closer and closer and closer to being able to save you. What do you say? The man says, I am your responsibility. You need to take care of me. A man by this time is really tired with his arms. He's got to get going. So finally says to him, he says, I tell you what, I'm going to give you one more chance. Wrap the rope around your waist, and you and I can work together to save you. The man responds, I am your responsibility. And when our man hears that, he lets go of the rope, and the man plunges to his death. I tell you that story because in Mark's gospel, it made me think when I was reading in Mark's gospel about that particular story. Let's review Mark's gospel over the last few Sundays. The first chapter tells us a lot about the mission of Jesus. He's got to get going. He's been baptized. He's been sent into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Last week we read the story that he goes to the synagogue, and while he's at the synagogue, people see that he speaks with authority, and he casts out the demons inside one of the members of that church. And then afterwards, the story for today, he goes after the synagogue service, after the church service, and he travels over to Simon Peter's house. And there is Simon Peter's mother-in-law who is ill. Now, there's nothing in the story that tells us what kind of illness uh, Simon Peter's mother has. Uh, she could have the flu, she could have a headache, she could have a heartbreak, she could have all sorts of things. It doesn't matter. It's almost like Mark doesn't care what the illness is. All we know is that Jesus touches her, stands her up, serves her, and the woman is healed. Well, you can imagine what happens in Capernaum. The moment that word gets out that Jesus has healed this woman, everybody with any trouble goes straight to the house, Simon Peter's house, to be, to be healed. And so at the, uh, Mark, in an unusual manner, because he doesn't give a lot of details in his gospel, in this particular story, he gives us some details. Everybody comes crowding over to Simon Peter's house. Everybody in that community wants to be healed. People with a broken arm, they get healed. People with a broken heart, they get healed. People with a headache, they get healed. People with a broken leg, they get healed. Everybody that needs to be healed, everybody gets healed. Not only that. But Mark tells us that he cast out demons. Can you believe that the demons are leaving people? Well, you can imagine what's going on in Capernaum. Everybody say, finally, finally, we've got a good doctor in town. Finally, finally, we've got a good healer in town. Let's keep this guy in town. Let's do whatever we can to make sure that he remains amongst us. Now, what we find is that early in the morning, while it's still dark, Jesus gets up, goes up to a place all by himself, and he prays. And after he's been praying for some time, Mark doesn't tell us for how long he's been praying, but after he's been praying for some time, they all come. There are only four disciples at this time. 
Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the four of them says, everybody's looking for you. You're a hero. You're the star. You're the one that we've been waiting for. Just think, Jesus, we could make Capernaum, we could make in Capernaum the Mayo Clinic for all this whole area. We could become rich. We could do all sorts of research. You can keep on healing everybody, and everybody will come to you, and you and we will be popular, and you and we will, we will be powerful, and you and we, we will be excited, and we will live a good life. Now, what's odd about the story is that Jesus doesn't say anything back to what they've just said. Everybody's looking for you. He doesn't care, and he says, no, I need to go do what I've been called to do. I need to go out through Galilee and proclaim the gospel that I have been invited to proclaim. And they go on to proclaim the gospel and to cast out demons and heal other people in other places. I think the story, once you've gone through it all, I always ask myself, well, what, is about, what about us? What's this got to do with us? Very nice story in Mark's gospel. I would suggest to you that Jesus had, uh, the devil was tempting Jesus. The devil was tempting Jesus to offer that which was a good in him as opposed to what the best that God expected from him. There's nothing wrong with being the doctor. There's nothing wrong with being the healer. There would be nothing wrong with starting the Mayo Clinic there in uh, Capernaum. There's nothing wrong with that. But somehow in his prayer life, Jesus re recognized that that was not his highest calling. You and I both know what his highest calling was. He was called to be a healer at times, but primarily he was called to be the Savior and Redeemer and Messiah of the world. And he had to get on and do it. And he decided that what was good in him was not good enough. What God asked of him was what was the best in him to be the Messiah to be the savior of the world. It's the same question all of us have to deal with, don't you think? What's the good in us? What do you offer as the good in you as opposed to the very best that's in you? Think about that. What do you offer your family? That which is good or the very best? What do you offer in school? That which is good or you offer the very best? What do you offer at work? Good work or the very best work that you have to offer? What do you offer your city? Something good inside of you or do you offer the very best? Many years ago, I read a business book entitled Good to Great. I know that many of, of you read that book, Good to Great. But the very first line of that book was this, good is the enemy of great. Good is the enemy of great. Now, I don't like the word great and not for political reasons. This is not a diet, political diatribe this morning. I prefer the word best. Good is the enemy of the best. And the question for all of our lives is this. Are you prepared to offer the best, the best that God has asked of you, or will you only offer that which is good of you? Many years ago, I read a book entitled The Best and the Brightest. It was written by David Halberstam. And I remember one particular line in that, in that book, and it said that he was describing some people in the book, and he said that they were men, and they were all men in that book, that they were men of compelling mediocrity. And I thought to myself, what an insult to offer that to anybody. Men of compelling mediocrity. 
When I was graduating from Virginia Theological Seminary, one of my professors was a man named Jess Trotter. And Jess Trotter, as we were leaving seminary in his last class that he said, he looked at all of us young clergy, about, young people about to enter the ministry, and he said, now remember this, don't ever cut back on your hopes to avoid your losses. Don't ever cut back on your hopes to avoid your losses. And he said, shoot high. Make sure you shoot high. Make sure you give your best, not just which is adequate. Don't shoot too low to avoid the losses, but always shoot high, even if you don't get there. One of the words that I love in the biblical narratives is the word strive. The word strive means to try with energy. The word strive is to do it with everything in your heart. The word strive is to make sure that you've given every last ounce of your energy, that which is the very best in you. And we find it over and over in the biblical narratives. God inviting us not just to try, not just to give it good effort, but God is inviting us to strive in everything in our lives, to give the very best. When I was a young guy, I used to be on track teams, both in high school and in college. And my dream when I was in high school was that I was going to become an Olympic runner. And very early in that career, I learned that you can't win the Kentucky Derby with a mule. <laughs> but I loved the sport because you could do your very best even if you did not win and you would feel great about your effort because you had given it your very best. And you could be just as satisfied and delighted with your performance as the person who had won the race. Jesus stopped, prayed, examined his life, and refused to give the good in him. He gave back to God the very best, Redeemer and Savior of the world. So to Jesus, so to us. What is the best in you? Not what's good, but what is the best that God is inviting you to offer to your family, to your work, to your school, to your church, to your community? Amen.